Hello, my name is Phil Lawler. I'm Senior Fellow at the Center for the Restoration of Christian Culture at Thomas More College, and I welcome you to my Book of the Month Club. Every month, I arrange to have a conversation with the author of a recently published book that I've found particularly interesting, something that offers a provocative perspective on one or more of the topics that are of particular interest to our center. Those topics are education in the liberal arts, the defense and promotion of marriage and family life, active Christian involvement in civic life, the arts, and the teachings of the Catholic Church. I hope these podcasts will stimulate further conversations as well as interest in our center. If you enjoy what you hear today, please check back to the website of the Center for the Restoration of Christian Culture and take a look at some of our other conversations in this Book of the Month series, as well as other offerings from our center. Please also sign up for regular email notices about coming events, both online presentations and live events. Finally, if you're able, please support our work by making a contribution to the work of the Center. You'll find a handy form on our website as well. All contributions are appreciated and all are tax deductible. Now on to this month's conversation. This month on my Book of the Month podcast, I'm cheating a little bit. Let me explain. Back in March, around the time of St. Patrick's Day, I heard through a mutual friend that another old friend, Connaught Marshner, had given a very interesting talk about the history of Catholicism in Ireland before the days of St. Patrick. Contrary to popular belief, St. Patrick was not the first missionary who brought the faith to Ireland. And now Connie Marshner has done a lot of work of research into the earliest days of Catholicism in Ireland and come up with a fascinating paper, which was her master's thesis in Gaelic literature, and which I hope will be a book someday. That's why I'm justifying using it as the subject for a Book of the Month podcast. In her research, she has found ample evidence that Catholicism came to Ireland very early on. You may be surprised to hear where it came from and how that has influenced Catholicism in Ireland may be right to this day. Stay tuned. How did you first become interested in this question of Christianity in Ireland before St. Patrick? Well, I had a lifelong love of Ireland from the time I was 12 years old when I read The Story of the Irish Race by Seamus McManus. I had read every book on Ireland in my middle school library, and, and the dear nun who taught religion, I guess we must have had a conversation, and so she went to the upper school library and in her yeah. own name checked out the Seamus McManus book for me. And uh, it was love at first sight. I mean, once I read about those heroes of 1916, that became my my consuming passion in life. Of course, other things took took over, you know, life, marriage, career, children, etc. But I still always loved Ireland and read everything I could about it. And back in, oh, the late, in the early 70s, I was introduced to the Byzantine Rite, to the Eastern Rites of the Catholic Church, the Eastern mm -hmm. Catholic Churches, and uh, have been, you know, a Melkite ever since, and deeply, you know, deeply immersed in the liturgy and the many liturgies, the Vespers, the Compline, the Daily Prayers, etc., in the Byzantine Rite. Well, early 1990s, 
there was a raft of books that came out about Celtic Christianity. And the thesis there was, oh my gosh, the ancient Celtic Christians were really cool. They were all about women's rights and uh, loving nature. And it was just beautiful. And it really didn't have anything to do with Rome. And I read some of the prayers and poems that got published around that time. And there was just something about them that echoed. There was just an echo there, a very faint echo. So the seed was planted in my mind. That, Interesting. That uh -huh. there's something here. And uh, it was years and years before I was able to do anything about it. But at the beginning of COVID, I happened to see an online ad for a, an online master's degree at University College Cork uh, in Gaelic literature. And since I was facing, you know, at least a year of being cooped up, I figured this is a great way to have a happy place to go. So I signed up for that. And it was absolutely wonderful because it opened up uh, so many resources to me that I didn't know existed and had wonderful courses all done on Zoom, pre-recorded, but still wonderful access to material. And so I began to get serious about looking into this question and what what was there. And it was absolutely amazing what I found. I mean, like, you know, for instance, uh, the Uwam inscription, before the Christians arrived in Ireland, there was no written language in Ireland except what's called Uwam uh, inscriptions, which is basically lines carved into stones. But they've subsequently learned how to translate them. And there is one. Now, now the Uwam inscriptions go from like, the first century BC to the fourth century AD. That's the dating of those stones. And one of those says, pray for Olin the Egyptian at St. Olin's Well in, in County Cork. Now, okay, fourth century or earlier, St. Olin the Egyptian, huh? What's going on here? So where did this come from? Then there's a, there's a martyrology uh, written probably about the seventh or eighth century that has an invocation to pray for the seven Egyptian monks buried at Desert Illig. Pray for the seven Egyptian monks buried at Desert Illig, a mm. place in Ireland. How did there get to be seven Egyptian monks buried in Ireland? Now, over time, the critics and the scholars said, oh, that's all just illusions or poetic or, you know, that, that really didn't mean it because the prevailing thought for a long, long time was how in the world could this Western island, this remote Western island, have had any contact with the Eastern Europe Mediterranean? How could it have had anything to do with this part of the world? And that was the prevailing scholarly opinion for a long time. It's but, kind of a funny, <laughs> funny opinion when you think we're talking about the origins of Christianity, which came out of the Mediterranean. Well, yes, exactly. But but you have to <laughs> you have to realize that the the scholarship of Irish literature, which began in the 19th century, was done by Church of England people, mm -hmm. uh, Brits, British people, whose opinion of Ireland was that it was a backward, right, no good place. I mean, in fact, before <laughs> the colonization of of Cromwell, uh, and you know, even before the Normans uh, invaded Ireland. Ireland was a very important culture in Europe, and it was very cosmopolitan, and it had links and trade and intellectual exchanges with all the intellectual centers of Europe. 
And it was a a very bright star in the European constellation before it was conquered. Yes. And again, from from a perspective of Christian history, the monks in Ireland more or less uh, preserved Christianity for a time there when so-called Dark Ages. So, yeah, there's there's, there's a lot of history later. Yes, yes, but the a lot of those those monks. What was interesting about those monks is that people have always remarked, even friendly Catholic sources, that golly gee, the Irish monks were so strict, they were so severe, they mm. were so ascetical. Why? Where? You know, much more extreme than than Benedict. You know, when Benedict's rule came out. Uh, that took over uh-huh. because he was so relaxed. Because in fact, the Irish monks had, through Iona and Lindisfarne, which were Irish settlements, they had then converted the Anglo Saxons, and so the Anglo Saxon monks were following the Irish rules, and they were then the Anglo Saxons uh, and Columbanus had then gone over to Europe and converted Europe, and Charlemagne's would have known monks as you know from the tradition of the irish and he said wait a minute we got to do something easier than this and so he asked the pope to send him benedict's rule and that's how, and that's how benedictines got okay all right but let's go back to where where the uh, yes, got yes. The strictness there were always ascetics everywhere of course there were always you know people who fled into the desert and particularly certain times of persecution under the romans but the founding of monasticism really goes back to St. John Cassian, 360. He was born 435. He died. Now, he was a confidant of St. John Chrysostom. I mean, that's, you know, that's how far back this we're talking. He ended up, well, he was in the, in the desert. He fled to the desert. He wrote the basic manual for monasticism, which became a bestseller in its day. He ended up in Marseille, in France, otherwise mm-hmm. known as Gaul. And there was an island, there is an island still there called Larin, off the coast of Marseille, where another Eastern monk had started a monastery. And Larin became a huge fourth, fifth century. They, they called it the nursery of bishops because it was such a center of scholarship. And the influence of Larin on the Frankish church, that is to say the Church of Gaul, is enormous. And all accounts, all best scholarship maintains that the Christian church in Ireland would have come through Gaul. After Patrick, remember Patrick was a a Roman youth uh, who didn't take the faith very seriously. He was kidnapped, taken to Ireland, spent seven years on a hillside tending sheep, heard the voice of the Lord, escaped. And we don't know exactly where he went and what he did until he comes back to Ireland as a bishop having heard the voices of the children in his dreams, just like St. Joseph, he had dreams of the Lord telling him what to do. But it, for a long time, was speculated that he actually went to Lorraine to study and oh. be formed. There is no way to document that. And that is a tradition. That there's no proof of it. He never okay. said he went to Gaul. He never wrote about Gaul. We don't know where he was during those missing years. But it's possible that he also had picked up this monastic tradition. So what we do know about the faith in Ireland is that it was 432 when Rome sent the first bishop to Ireland. And that was not Patrick. That was a man named Palladius. And he was sent to the people 
the Scoti, they were called, believing in Christ. So there were Christians there already. Where were they? Who were they? Some of them could have been kidnapped Christians from Britain, but some of them could have been these Eastern monks who had many, many reasons to flee from the Mediterranean. Many, many theological wars going on then that would have driven them there. So, you know, from Anthony the Great, who founded it in Egypt, written up by John Cassian, and then Cassian carried it around. Um, so that that's kind of the origin of how they could have gotten there. In a book, they would have been from the Byzantine tradition. Well, th- there was no difference at the time. I mean, uh, right. we're talking about it was all one church. And this is this is what people uh, oftentimes don't realize, that the church was, I mean, the first language of the church was Greek, right? Mm-hmm. And the church was an Eastern, or it had an Eastern origin. I mean, even, even the Pope of Rome, how many of the popes were Greek or Syrian up until, you know, about the 12th century? Mm-hmm. And there was, it was one church, and there was really no difference between, you know, Byzantine or otherwise. It was all one. Yeah. And some of the some of the evidence for this is is the monks themselves. There's a seventh century uh, manuscript that has survived called the Antiphonary of Bangor. Now I should mention that there were hundreds and hundreds of monasteries in Ireland, which were creating manuscripts constantly. So thousands and thousands of manuscripts were created by the Irish monasteries, and today in Ireland there are one thousand of them. They were lost. The Vikings, the monks who went on missions, took them with them to Europe. And that's how we know many of these things, because they survived in European libraries and were discovered in the 16th or 17th or 18th century. There was one that was discovered even later. But anyhow, the Antiphonary of Bangor has a great passage in it where the monks themselves were writing down their own origins. And they say, built on the rock, and the true vine transplanted from Egypt. And, you know, this was, of course, all this is dismissed. This is poetry, blah, blah. But you know what? I tend to think that monks writing in the 7th century about the history of their house would have been telling the truth. Right. And I, if you were going to be poetic, why Egypt? Exactly. Exactly. You know, it's interesting. And when you think of Ireland, you think of uh, several tourist attractions, but one is the high crosses. Mm-hmm. And those high crosses are loaded with sculpture. And St. Martin of Tours is on many of those crosses. Why? And what else is on many of those crosses is the meeting of St. Paul and St. Anthony of the Desert. St. Paul, the St. Paul. Mm-hmm. And St. Anthony of the Desert. And that's the, actually the images are on, I think it's like seven or eight of them. This image of Anthony and Paul, each holding the opposite end of a loaf of bread. And the story is that they met in the desert and they wanted to share a loaf of bread. And they and Paul said, well, you're, you're, you're more ascetic than I am. You should have the first piece. And, and he said, no, no, you're the apostle. You should have the first piece. And so... They couldn't agree who ate first, and so they each took a a side of the bread and pulled it apart. Uh And that story is written down by St. Jerome. So Uh there's a a foundation for that. And that that image is on a number of high crosses. So how would they have known that? You know, they've known that story. 
and and in, it's not on high crosses or altarpieces elsewhere in Europe, but it obviously had a great hold in Ireland. So I, I could I could keep going, but I don't mean to monopolize the conversation. Well, let me ask you this: it's it's a fascinating story, but it does give rise to the question to me. So what happened? What happened to these Egyptian monks? I mean, presumably they're monks; they didn't have children, but. Where are the traces? It, it seems to me that you are finding evidence of something that was there that isn't there anymore. So what happened? Well, let me tell you a little bit about monasticism in Ireland. When We'll use St. Patrick as, as a hypothetical here, because he does get the credit for, <laughs> he does get the credit, so we'll give it to him for converting Ireland. And he wrote the first two works of Irish history, really, his uh, Confessions and his letter to Caroticus. So uh, we'll, we'll give him the credit. When he converted somebody in Ireland, he would eventually work his way. He had a wonderful evangelization style. And he, having lived there and had, speaking the language, he knew how to do it. And he knew how to appeal to the different kings. Now, you got to understand there were about 150 kings in Ireland. And uh, they each controlled their own land. And so he would convince the king, okay, can I please have a monastery? Can I please have some land? And the king would say, okay. And so he'd start a monastery in generic terms. Well, then the king would die. Now, they didn't have inheritance laws, and they didn't make wills like we do. Mm. When the king would die, the Derbfin, which is three generations of, you know, out to the third cousins, would all get together and decide what to do with everything and also would pick the next king. Uh, it wasn't a monarchy in, in the inherited sense. So the family would get together and they'd say, well, what are we going to do with this land over on the mountain that you know St. Patrick has? And what would most likely happen is that they would say, well, you know, he's doing a lot of good over there and and, you know, they're teaching us how to grow better crops and you know, we can send our troublesome kids there and, you know, let's keep them. And so then the the Derb fiend would say, okay, well, Johnny, why don't you go ahead and become the monk over there? Why don't you become the abbot? And mm -hmm. so the Druids, the ancient Druids, who were the scholars and the men of learning, they kind of moved into the position of being abbots and they brought their families with them. Celibacy was not in, in 4th century, 5th century, 6th century, celibacy wasn't terribly important. Mm -hmm. And after all the Old Testament chieftains and the Old Testament kings, and they were all married and the prophets were married, so why can't we be married? So these monasteries became family enterprises and they became clan enterprises. And they became, by the 7th century, they were pretty big and they were pretty involved in worldly affairs. But then Rome got serious and said, you know, we really have to enforce celibacy. And it didn't really take hold until the Norman invasion. But by then, you had the reforms of the 11th century, 12th century, and then things began to change and things began to come more into conformity with Rome. So they just, they were there until Rome started paying attention to Ireland again. Would the liturgy have been standardized as Rome became more interested in the Irish church so that some of the ancient traditions that first got you interested in this were no longer so visible? 
Well, it didn't die without a fight. Let me put it that way. This is a very, very interesting story. There was a lot of liturgical diversity in Ireland and in England. And when Augustine was sent to Kent by Pope Gregory, uh, he wrote back to Pope Gregory and said, there's a lot of different liturgies being celebrated here uh, among these British Christians because, you know, they've been evangelized by these Irish monks and some of them were evangelized from Gaul. And, you know, there's all different forms of liturgy. What should I do? And Gregory's answer, and this is Gregory the Great we're talking about, uh, as recorded in Bede, is if you have found anything either in the Roman or the Gaulish church or any other church, which may be more pleasing to Almighty God, you should make careful selection of them and teach the Church of the English, which is still new in the faith, what you have been able to gather from other churches. Choose from every individual church whatever things are devout, religious, and right. And when you've collected these, as it were, into one bundle, see that the minds of the English grow accustomed to it. That's a quote? That's a quote uh, okay. from, from Gregory the Great through Bede's Ecclesiastical History. But how beautiful an approach is that to diversity in liturgy? Mm-hmm. He said, you know, if it's authentic, if it's real, if it's in harmony with our teaching, yeah, go ahead. And if they like it, use it. <laughs> you know? And, uh, you know, later on, he, he did stipulate, you know, this is another letter there was eventually a synod at Bangor to to try to get things settled. And there the date of Easter was the crucial thing because the Irish church celebrated Easter on a different date mm. than the West. They calculated it differently. And that became the sticking point. You know, Rome said, if you will celebrate Easter at the proper time, and perform baptism in the right way, then, you know, we'll tolerate all your other customs, even though they're contrary to our own. So they were willing to tolerate liturgies that weren't strictly Roman, as long as you had the date of Easter. Uh, But then Gregory then began to supplant the native rites with uh, those of Rome. And the Council of Whitby, 644, was, was pretty much the end of liturgical diversity, or the beginning of the end of liturgical diversity. But it didn't go down without a fight. About the mid-8th century, there's a document that has survived that defends the Irish and the Gallican liturgies in the face of the standardization coming from Rome. Mm-hmm. Now, Rome called the Irish uh, liturgy the Cursus Scotorum, because, of course, the Scoti were the Irish. They became known as the people of northern England, otherwise the Scots. But in the old days, they, the Irish were called the Scoti. Mm-hmm. Uh, And an anonymous monk sat down to write a defense of the Corsus Scotorum. He he records all the historical origins of the Corsus Romanus, the Gallorum, Ambrosiae, Benedicti, and Elius Orientalis. So he says there are all these different rites. If you read it, it's like one one side of an 8th century liturgy war, Uh because it it responds to the, the claims that the Irish and the Gallican liturgy were not as authentic as those used at Rome. And he says, our liturgy came from St. Mark and St. John. They're, they're just as valid as what the descendants of St. Peter are trying to say. And uh, the Ratio claims that the Gallican liturgy was inherited from the earliest bishops of Gaul who took their practice from Peter in Rome and John in Ephesus. And Irenaeus, who was the second bishop of Lyon in Gaul, was a mentor, you know, came from St. Polycarp's hometown. And the author of this emphasizes that and the liturgy of St. Mark was followed by the entire Irish community. 
and that everybody would sing together the Gloria, the Sanctus, the Lord's Prayer, and the great Amen. In Roman practice, all those were just said by the priest or by the the priest with the other clergy, but the whole congregation said them together in the Corsus Scotorum. So it followed some Greek customs, but anyhow, uh, he, he goes through, this unknown author goes through the ancestry of the liturgy. Prayed by Mark the Evangelist in the days when all Egypt and Italy were as one church. And then uh, it, Egypt and Italy again. Were one church. Yeah, right. but but picking out Egypt. It, yeah, exactly. There it is. Look at that. Yes, yes. It, it, it's, uh, I'm sorry, we're, we're running out of time. But you have told me in previous conversations that there's evidence that's emerged only recently of a tie to Egypt. Yes, yes. And that, let me tell you about that. That is the most exciting thing, because as I was saying, things keep emerging all the time. In 2006, a farmer was digging in a field to get dig up some peat, and he came upon a lump that looked rather interesting. And so he set it aside, called in the experts, and it took four years to conserve it. Uh, but during the conservation process, it turned out to be a salter a psalm book. And the inside of the leather cover was found to be papyrus from Egypt. And not only that, but in order to find a book that had been constructed in a similar fashion, the conservators had to go to the Nag Hammadi books in the Cairo Museum. So, I mean, think about that. The Nag Hammadi documents are fourth century scriptures that uh, were not necessarily didn't make it into the canon right but they were christian in the 4th century right and in order to find a book that had been made physically constructed in the same way they had to go there so, so here you have something 4th century basically what looks like a 4th century egyptian manuscript showing up in a bog in ireland well, it would be a it would be a younger manuscript, obviously, because it's written in, in Celtic script, so okay. it wasn't written in Egyptian. But the okay. technique would have been Egyptian. So okay. they knew they couldn't have known that unless there were Egyptian monks there, even as late, you know, or at least following what they had learned earlier. They haven't dated that authoritatively, but it's probably probably seventh, eighth century. It's fascinating. I, and I am sorry, I have to bring this to a close because we are running out of our Zoom meeting time. Oh, dear. Uh, but, okay. But I hope our listeners understand why I want this book to be printed, because I think <laughs> it's it's just a fascinating story. And it was so new to me and unexpected to find this connection, um, particularly right from Egypt to Ireland. But it, it's a fascinating story, and I'm glad you're able to share it with us. Oh, thank you so much, Phil. I'll be happy to talk again anytime. Thank you for joining us for this podcast. This is Phil Lawler speaking for the Center for the Restoration of Christian Culture at Thomas More College. I hope you've enjoyed this presentation, and I hope you'll register on our website to receive information about future events hosted by the Center. If you find these recordings helpful, please help us to continue our work by making a tax-deductible contribution. We cannot continue to provide fine programming without the support of people like you, and we're grateful for your help. To receive updates on our activities or to make a contribution to our work, see our webpage at restorationchristianculture.org. 
That's all lowercase with no spaces of punctuation. Restorationchristianculture.org. Thank you again.